it used to confuse me when, as people talked about relationships, romantic or otherwise, they would refer to the relationship as like a third entity. There was the person and a person or a few people, and then there was the relationship that they were in. Like it was this other thing. You, me, and then the relationship. But it turns out there's actually something to that. Sometimes what's being referred to by the relationship is this idea of what we should be or what we could be like if we did this well. Sometimes it's a good thing, specifically when that vision is a shared vision and we're in lockstep and headed that direction, trying to become that vision, that ideal of what a relationship looks like. But sometimes the relationship we're referring to and feel responsible for isn't at all reflective of the actuality of the connection between us. It doesn't help us love each other or even see each other. I can see this so clearly and so often when the relationship we're speaking of is with the church or just with church, capital C church. Circumstances change, so do expectations. Heck, the particulars of the social and interpersonal contract we've entered into change as well. In the end, belonging like love is a choice rather than a consequence. This is how we know what love is, says the writer of John. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Why are you here? Ah, because I choose to be. Because I'm yours. Because you're mine. And that's where it gets kind of complicated with the word mine. At the beginning of adolescence, I, I learned, or I thought I learned, that being possessive was one of the worst things that someone could be in a relationship. Being possessive was associated with jealousy and suspicion, judgment, control. It was an entirely negative thing to be possessive, to be a possessive boyfriend or girlfriend or even friend. And yet, the older I've gotten and the more I've lost <laughs> relationally, I've grown in the desire to be bound to others by far more than either my force of will or my effort or bound to others as a reward for my performances. I've longed to know that even as things change, sometimes dramatically and sometimes sadly, I'm still worth belonging to. I'm worth belonging with. I'm worth someone saying you are mine. I don't entirely reject the lessons of my early adolescence, but at the same time, there certainly is something to being identified by someone as essential, as part of their life, regardless of any and all things. I really resonate here with the biblical imagery of Christ and Christ's bride. And at the same time, I'm really challenged by this other biblical moment. I am inspired and more so honestly scandalized by the way that the writers of the early New Testament, a few of them, constantly come back to calling Judas Iscariot, the one who betrays Jesus, one of us. They claim him as ours. Here it is in the book of Luke, 22nd chapter. Now the festival of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was near. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put Jesus to death, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers of the temple police about how he might betray him, which is Jesus. 
to them. And then a completely different writer at a different time, the book of Mark, 14th chapter. Immediately, while he was still speaking again to Jesus, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away under guard. There's no mistaking here that any time he's referenced, it's clear that folks acknowledge what he's done, that he betrayed Jesus, he did it with a kiss, it was awful, he sold him out for money. There's no getting around that description of Judas's actions. And yet, this is just two of four or five instances in which folks who are writing about the story of Judas use the phrase, one of the 12. I am scandalized and inspired and moved and challenged by that. Yes, they say, he's the betrayer. He's also ours. And that kind of associative belonging, that kind of commitment to someone does not have to come along with. In fact, it doesn't come along with. The denial of their wrongdoing, much less turning a blind eye and saying, ah, that's not who they are, or excusing any sort of misstep or injustice or betrayal. It doesn't come along with any of that. It does, though, reframe those missteps, reframe those injustices, reframe even those betrayals. That yes, that is part of who they are, that they have done those things, that they have said those things, and they have lived that way. And part of what makes that so tragic is that there is so much more to them, including the fact that they belong to me and I to them. Yes, this is true of them also true of them, they're one of ours. And that doesn't come with forgetfulness. It also doesn't come with forgiveness. But maybe that's the kind of posture, the kind of commitment, the kind of relationship that actually makes something like forgiveness possible. That in order to want it bad enough for you to do the work that it takes to actually move you and me to a place of forgiveness, much less restoration, I have to want it like I would want it for myself. And maybe that comes with calling you mine.